The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello, my friend, and welcome to another episode of Negotiate Anything. Thanks for spending time with us today. It's listeners like you in 181 different countries that have made Negotiate Anything the most popular negotiation and conflict resolution podcast in the world. I'm your host, Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer, mediator, professor, and the director of the American Negotiation Institute. Before we get started, I have two quick questions for you. Is negotiation a critical part of what you do? Do you need to resolve conflict and persuade at work? If you answered yes to both of those questions, visit our website to learn more about our negotiation workshops. We've traveled the country working with professionals just like you, and we'd love to have the opportunity to work with you too. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Hey everyone, and welcome to part four of the virtual town hall on the topic of how to have difficult conversations about race. And you made it. Kudos. Congratulations. This is the last portion of the Q&A, and we round out the third hour of this marathon session. So thank you for sticking with us and hope you enjoy it. How do you reconcile the challenges of the U.S. Constitution itself since it was authored by people who felt it was acceptable to own other people? Are difficult conversations enough to create the actual change we need up to and including co-authoring a new social contract? Yeah, that's really tough. So... Let me just tell you my perspective on the Constitution. Uh, I, I see it as a living document that changes as we, as the world changes. It can't be the same. I mean, what what would the Constitution say about uh, Twitter? I mean, nothing, <laughs> nothing. It would have nothing to offer for a lot of the the most fundamental principles and issues that we have today. Um, I, one of the problems I have with the Constitution is that we treat it almost like a religious document where it's like the the people who created this were infallible and um therefore that their word their word is law um religious law and cannot be altered and i think that's problematic because they were people they were people and they were people with uh with significant um deficiencies when it came to the the way that they saw the world in a in the social equity type of way when you think about it racially and gender wise um they were very backward in that sense and then when you think about their understanding of um of the world from a technological perspective they were backwards in many ways and so i can't imagine if that if those people were to come back if if you know the people who penned this document were to come back what would they add to the discussion like nothing if somebody with that level of intelligence were to come back and, and try to contribute to discussions today what would they add nothing so when it comes to the document it is problematic. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a, something that we have to do when it comes to the difficult conversations that we're having day to day um, with each other to create change in our smaller community. Because I believe the, the biggest change is going to happen locally. But you're right, when it comes to affecting change on the, like the national level, when we're talking about the U.S. Constitution, we have to think about it in terms of uh, from the public policy side. So uh, let me brush off the, the public policy degree. So with that, we have to recognize what it takes. It takes a significant vote in, um, on the national level. And that's going to be really tough to do. Um, and so there's a difference between like persuasion and power. If you have power, you can leverage situations and you don't need to be persuasive because you have the, the leverage. You can bully it through. And I think if you want to change the constitution in a meaningful way, um, you're going to have to have a lot, a lot of both persuasion and power. We don't have that. 
right now. So we have to do what we can do right now in the short term um, and, and try to build up to bigger change. But that's a great question. Yeah, very good question. How do black folks <laughs> overcome the implications of cultural fit? I'm often perceived as angry because I don't smile all day like my white, Asian, and Hispanic counterparts. It's almost like I'm being expected to tap dance and if i don't do that i alienate myself how can i get them to understand that to be black in america is to be stressed and possibly angry um i would i would say this and for the like for everybody people process things differently I, and i would say it is to be black in america could lead someone to be stressed and angry and legitimately so um i i don't want to to make people feel like you have to be you have to feel that way. So that's the first thing. But I, I, I see what you're saying. And um, I would, it depends on the way that you want, want to approach it. Um, because you have the job and everything like that. So you're, you're in, but cultural fit is a very, very problematic type of thing. Because let's say, all right, you are in the organization. So you have that, you have that position. But if cultural fit is going to be something that they consider when they're determining who moves up, um, you're going to struggle because that's going to be a barrier because they say, as you, as you said, you're not tap dancing. So it is a legitimate problem. If it's a problem to the point where you're willing to say something, then you have to structure a persuasive argument. Um, and I think what it would be is for acceptance for who you are and how you act, because what you're doing is not a, a, a like, it's not an intentional act of aggression to other people. Hey, I don't, feel good about this situation. So I'm not going to pretend like I feel good. And I don't want to feel that obligation. Right. And so what I would say, what I, the way I would have the conversation is I would say, sometimes I feel as though, uh, because I'm not as happy go lucky or whatever the term you want to use is, uh, because I'm not as smiley and happy go lucky as everybody else. I'm perceived as uh, having a negative impact and um, then talk about the impact that that perception has on you. Right. And then what I would do is I would try to figure out concretely what it is that you could possibly do. Like, what is the actual true change that you want to see? Because for them, it might not be clear. It might be very clear for you, but it not, might not be that for them. And so the challenge I have for you is to figure out a way to articulate that to the person that you that that can make a change. And that's going to be really tough. That's going to be really tough. Um, cultural fit, I mean, I tell you, that's really, really difficult. Because when they say cultural fit, really, what they're saying is how much your appearance and who you are reflects um, positively on who I am. So if, if somebody, if there are people applying for the American Negotiation Institute, and I'm like, yeah, we're going for cultural fit. Uh, it's like, hey, I'm a Caribbean American male. Oh my gosh, I think you'd fit in here great. <laughs> we haven't even talked about new substance, right? And that's problematic. And so the concept of cultural fit is often used as a, as a tool, a socially acceptable tool for, to, for greater levels of discrimination. And so I think even that, that term, if that term is in use as like a hiring practice, it's going to be problematic. If there are any employment law, lawyers in there uh, in, in the chat, let me know. Um, I'm not familiar with... Um, with all of those laws, but I feel like you're getting pretty close to kind of skirting the line if that's like a in, in, involved in hiring practices. So I wish I had a better answer for this one. This is a really tough one. It's a really tough one because you shouldn't be pl placed in a situation where you have to act nice and happy if that's not the way that you feel. That's another, that's another essential, essentially an attack on who you are, 
right? And that's not fair to you. So I, I would, again, consider what it is concretely that you want and try to use that guide to think through strategically how you can get it. Um, because the thing is, it's just not going to happen naturally. That's the unfortunate thing. And even though you shouldn't have to have the conversation, you're, you're going to have to have the conversation because uh, based on the, the scenario that you painted for me, it doesn't seem like anybody's going to just step up and advocate for your right to be who you want to be or feel the way that you want to feel in the workplace. Um, when you address the question of whether racism causes poverty or poverty causes racism, you were with the former racism causes poverty. You mentioned systemic racism. Forgive my ignorance, but first of all, great, great formulation of the question. Forgive my ignorance is, is powerful, okay? So just want to say that. But if I don't understand it, perhaps some others here suffer from the same lack of recognition. Could you give a few examples that might help us see it? All right. Absolutely. So let's go deep. You hear my voice going? I sound like a, I sound like a cool guy, you know, like with the raspy voice. Anyway, that's an aside. So here's what we want to do. Let's give an example of how the, 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 the structures within society have been um, that have a racial component. So I live in Ohio, and the way that we, um, we determine the, the funding for schools is through property taxes, which means that the, the more expensive the house, the higher the property tax. The higher the property tax, the more investment can go into schools, which means that the schools with the highest quality education are going to be in those locations that have the highest property tax. Okay, so get that. So in the low income areas, they have lower property taxes, which means that the, there's less investment into the schools, which leads to lower quality schools. Okay, so how did we get here? So let's go way back. There's a concept called redlining. And so with redlining, what we had is these were the lines that banks drew, I believe it was banks drew, when they determined which communities they were going to invest in. And so what they did, and there are documents that actually show like the decision-making process that went into determining where these lines were drawn, one of the things that they considered was race. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
there's a high population of African Americans in this area. So we're going to draw the line around that community. And so this community is going to is not going to get economic investment, but this community will. And so it gave a significant advantage to the people who were in those more affluent communities. And they were they determined where the investment was going to go, in large part because of race. We want the white people to get it. We don't want the, the black people to get it. Redlining happened in the early 1900s, like 1930s, 1920s, those type of things. Okay, so now let's move forward. Okay, now what's interesting is that when you look at the, um, the maps today, and you see where in the communities, the, uh, the, the affluent communities are, not surprisingly, they're the same communities that were given investment way back in the 1900s. And so the people who live in the communities, they did not do anything wrong to acquire that advantage. It was something that was given to them almost a century ago. But because of where they lived, like their grandparents or grandparents' grandparents lived there, then the, the, the uh, economic advantage stayed within those families. And so now if you have, you have families that, like houses that might uh, have been in the, the family for generations, right? So now the house property goes up, the value goes up, you have more, you're living in an area that has more economic investment. So the structures around you are going to be significantly more um, beneficial to you. And so if you go to the Kerwin Institute, I'm not sure if they still have this publicly. If you Google Kerwin Institute opportunity mapping, what you'll see is the, the maps. And you can actually go to your neighborhood and you'll see where the highest opportunities are. So they created these maps that were uh, determined um, access to opportunity based on location. And so, for instance, I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Um, in, uh, and so there's a suburb called Upper Arlington, suburb called, called Dublin. If you look at the opportunity maps, you'll see that those opportunity maps, very, very um, favorable for those locations. And those opportunity maps are, are based on um, quality of education, um, health outcomes, um, those type of things, right? And so what you'll find in the areas where there's high access, there's high access to opportunity, we have more of the higher education, uh, the, uh, the life expectancy is significantly higher, um, the income is significantly higher, but then just if you're born in a lower income area, it, the, the opposite is true. And so it's just based on situational factors. And so that's just an example of how these structures are created racially. Um, and then it's not that the people who are in these positions, um, like today said, oh, yeah, I'm going to be racist today by creating the structure this way. It's just that they inherited a, a structure that was built in this way. And so that's where, where we talk about race precedes poverty in these situations. And a lot of times people want to change the discussion to, um, to like personal choice. And of course, I'm, you, you can't be naive and say that personal choice does not have an impact on, uh, on people's outcomes. But the thing is that people, there are people who have a significant um, advantage just based on geography and that their geographical advantage comes a lot of times from race. Um, so I would go to the Kerwin Institute to, to learn more about that. They have significantly more uh, resources on that. And, and frankly, I am rusty, so I might have misstated something. So I apologize in advance if I did. Uh, but the sentiment and the, uh, the ultimate I, perspective and idea behind it is, is valid. And so I think that's where you, what you have to consider. And then once you start to do the research, you say, that's, that's not right, you know? That's not right, and it and it's significant. Why why is it in this part of the city people live um, to the average age is uh, is seventy two, 
or and then the other part of the city the average people die at like 87 like whoa that's significant on average like people get longer lives just because of where they're born well that's not right you know so you have to consider that uh, i think that's a good place to start when you think about um the 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 institutionalized racism that we we struggle with today. But thank you very much for the question. And again, for other people, forgive my ignorance is a great way to, to introduce a, a concept. I appreciate your insight so much. I'm struggling with my children's father right now. He posts racial, he, he posts racial memes. It breaks my heart. How do I handle this with regard to the kids who, who has me, who, Pre, so I and I preach love and acceptance, and their father is preaching hate and division. What would you recommend? Oh my! Um, first of all, I want to empathize with you as much as I can. I, that's something I can't relate to, but that that's got to be incredibly difficult. So I am I'm, I'm sorry you're in that situation. Um, hmm. That's a tough one. That is a tough one. What I would do is, and I don't know this man. Um, but I could make some some guesses. What I would think, though, is, uh, man, that's a tough one. I'm going to think about that. How about we do this? Because I don't want to freestyle on this one. I don't know. I I don't know. So um, shoot shoot me shoot me an email. Catherine will handle it. Um, people who have emailed me in the past, they know that's where communication usually goes to die. Um, so send it with Catherine and um, she'll get in touch. She'll, she'll connect us somehow. I'll, I'll talk to you about that one. That's a tough one. Um, as a, next question. So as a white woman, I'm trying really hard to understand and see where my implicit bias comes from. Like everyone else, I'm a work in progress. I'm currently reading White Fragility. Do you have any other book suggestions? Um, selfishly, I'll suggest mine because I use the, uh, the compassionate curiosity framework as a debiasing tool too, that helps you go through that introspection process to, uh, kind of think through where it comes from. So how do I feel about the situation? Oh, I recognize that there's something that I don't like about myself. Um, I, where did that come from? I'm going to start asking questions and dig deeply. And here's the thing about implicit bias. Um, it, it impacts all of us. And so let me tell you a story for me. So when I was in um, an undergrad, I remember me and my friend Paul, uh, we were walking down the street. It was late at night. We were going to the gym and um, we, we were walking and there was a, a white couple who was, they were walking on the same side of the street. The boyfriend was on the outside closest to the street and the girlfriend was uh, on the inside. And um, so as I was walking, I was like, oh boy, this is going to be awkward because they were so so blissfully enamored with each other that they didn't recognize it. They didn't look up to see us. And I said to myself, look, growing up, I was like, oh, they're going to freak out when they see us coming close to them. And so as soon as the, the boyfriend walked up, uh, like looked up, we're about, about 20, 20 feet away. As soon as he looked up, he pulled his girlfriend's arm so hard that I was initially, I didn't even, initially I wasn't even, even offended. Initially I was concerned for her shoulder health, right? She, he pulled her arm so hard across the street and started walking on the other side of the street. Paul and I knew exactly what that was, right? That's a manifestation of implicit bias. You're fearful of, of these two black academics at OSU's campus. Um, but then you think about, let's fast forward. Now I'm in law school. I'm leaving the library late at night. And um, there's a, a group of, of young black men walking toward me. And I recognized that my heart rate started to go up. Um, and I started to kind of, I had that adrenal response. And I said to myself, wow, it's inside of me too. 
And so where does it come from? I think we're all exposed to the same society more or less and in, you know, in, in many meaningful ways. And so we're all exposed, exposed to the same media. That's a big place, right? We're all exposed to the same media. I grew up in a, in a white community, um, of course, black family, immigrants, um, but I grew up in a white community. And so I was exposed to a lot of those uh, beliefs as well. And so I started to harbor those beliefs about myself on a subconscious level. If you ask me you know, to think through it, I wouldn't think that way, but it's on a subconscious level. And so the first step that we need to, to take is self-awareness, recognize that it is inside of us and acknowledge that and accept that and not accept that in saying, oh, it's cool. <laughs> I, I have bias. It's, it's a cool thing. It's not a cool thing. But once we recognize and we have that awareness, now it helps us to, to introduce a little bit more um, thought into it. Actually, I have, I have a whole chapter on, um, on how to use uh, compassionate curiosity as a personal de-biasing tool, uh, thinking through it. So I, I encourage people in the chat to talk about other um, resources that might be helpful, but I know my book <laughs> would be helpful there. Um, Okay, let's go to the next one. If my extended family has clearly communicated many times that these aren't appropriate talk about, topics to talk about because we have different opinions, do I move on and focus energy elsewhere? Um, I'll hit you with the, my favorite lawyer answer. Uh, the lawyers who are still in the, in the chat will probably know what's coming. You can guess, see if you can say it before me. But the answer is gonna be, it depends. It really depends on the situation. And so what I would do, if you're really passionate about this, what I would do is I would just say, instead of talking about those different opinions, um, just say, I, I, just out of curiosity, I'd, I'd like to know what's leading you to kind of shut down this conversation. I'm not asking you to have the conversation. I just want to see what it is that's leading you to shut down. And you might find something interesting there. There might be something in there that, uh, that, that uh, could be could lead to a breakthrough. So for example, make some, I'm going to make something up. So you could say, I'm, I'm interested to see what lead you, led you to this uh, position to decide you just don't want to talk about it anymore. They might say something like, listen, in, in the past, I had a friend and we kept talking about it. I really appreciated that friend. And, and now we're just not friends anymore. And so I think the best way for us to preserve our relationship is to just cordon off that portion of it. Okay, great. Um, yeah, that might be some important information, right? But yeah, I think it's something that you should consider moving on and focusing energy elsewhere. I think that's a legitimate consideration, but you also have to consider what it is, what type of relationship you're willing to accept. Because sometimes if this is something that's really important to you and considering the fact that you've been here for two hours and 37 minutes, I would suppose that it is. Um, what I would say is in that situation, you might need to ask yourself, what type of relationship am I willing to accept? Because uh, you might not need to end the relationship, but, it, but you might need to downgrade the relationship just for your mental health, not as like a punishment, but just saying if, if it would be inauthentic for you to pretend like everything is okay between you and that other person, then maybe you need to consider spending less time with them if, if avoiding that conversation is an inauthentic response for you. See what I mean? It's not a punishment. So I'm not saying you punish people by not having the conversation if, they, they have, if they've shut you down. That's not what I'm saying at all. Again, kind of going back to what I said before about mental health, you have to consider the impact that it has on you. So, so think about that. How do I respond when a person slash client who makes racist statements, uh, makes racist statements, then immediately apologizes? I find this manipulative and I don't know how to call them out on it. Um, let them know what you see. 
you say, you say, listen, um, I appreciate the apology. Um, what I've noticed is that this is the, and try to be as specific as you can. Um, actually, don't try to be too specific. Just say this has happened in the past. But this has happened in the past. You, you've said something, you recognized it was offensive and then turned it off. Uh, then you said it, was, it wasn't a problem and you quickly apologized. Um, can you, I'm, I'm just a little bit confused because this keeps on happening. That's it. Remember what I said, uh, the Dan Oblinger special. Um, using confusion is a powerful tool. And so just let them know, listen, you're saying this, but your actions are saying that. I'm confused. What am I to believe? And then what I would also say is nobody can take away the way you feel about the situation. Let them know the impact it has on you. Let them know that you recognize the discrepancy and it's having an impact. And so that's the way I would say it too. Um, I, I, I agree, it can be manipulative, especially if they're doing it on purpose. And I think it's, uh, they're covering themselves, they could be potentially covering themselves with uh, plausible deniability. But also remember giving people the benefit of the doubt. It might be a situation where they're so used to saying those types of jokes that it's become a mental habit. And so they're, they, they're trying really hard to, to short circuit that but they're struggling because their base of humor has been that for so long. So again, I think it would be helpful to, to approach it from the, uh, the perspective of, I'm going to think they're trying their best. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, but I'm going to let them know the impact it's having and, and let them know I, I see the discrepancy between what they're doing and what they're saying. Next question. Ooh, this is a long one. How do you have a question with a white partner who responds during conversations about inequality, racial biases, systemic ra racism, police brutality, and other topics by dismissing the topics by blaming individuals for the choices they've made, stereotypical behaviors, or statements such as, well, if they, well, if they must have done something wrong in the first place, and then when I dive deeper into the topic of white privilege, they can't wrap their head around how the experiences uh, are polarizing. The conversation itself is an emotional topic. How do you manage the conversation when you're emotionally involved with somebody who views the reality of this issue in such a closed-minded way? Okay, tough. So let me say this. Um, what I would say is this. So let's say hypothetically, because I've had this I've had people say this uh, to certain extents too, right? Well, they shouldn't have been doing X, Y, Z. So he shouldn't have been going in that house. Well, he shouldn't have used a counterfeit bill. Um, you know, she shouldn't have been playing video games. Um, whatever the argument is in that situation, what they're doing is blaming the victim. Let's, let's, let's break this down, what's happening here. So blaming the victim is something that you do when you want to believe that we're living in a just world. It's called the just world hypothesis. And so what you do is you interpret facts in a way that helps you to retain that belief that the world is fair. And you want to believe that the world is fair because it's working for you. One of my favorite images on this is the image of a little fish saying the world is unfair. And then a bigger fish about to eat the little fish that says the world is kind of fair. And then a bigger fish about to eat the medium-sized fish that says the world is fair, right? Because the way that it, the world is working is working for them. So they don't want to, <laughs> to ruin that perspective because, hey, well, it, it's working for me. This is working for me. Then if it changes, is it still working for me? That's, a that's, a, that's dangerous. And a lot of times we conflate familiarity with what's right and since this is a familiar circumstance for her, where she sees the world um, as, a, as, a, as someplace fair, 
it's kind of like a threat to her identity, the way that she sees the world, if she admits that there was something wrong there. So I'll, I'll start with that. I wanted to tell you the, like, the psychological roots of where that could potentially be coming from. So that's the first thing. And so what I would do is I would clarify. So, okay, are you saying then that because the, the proper punishment for, for engaging in this illegal activity is, is execution? Is that you're, are you okay with that? And I think presenting, this is one of those times where I would say, uh, present a, bri a binary choice. Um, and uh, the tactic here, I forget which book this is from, but it's essentially, it's called Be Extreme or Come to Me, uh, where you frame it in the most extreme way possible, which the facts provide. So are you saying that the proper punishment for a counterfeit $20 bill is execution, um, public execution? Is that what you're suggesting? The answer has to be no. Okay, then. So, so then we can use that as the launching point for deeper dialogue, going back to the framework. Um, and so the, the dismissal of the, the issue by talking about individual factors is problematic because they're focusing on the micro, not the macro, like we described earlier. Yes, this is the, the issues that we've had recently with police brutality um, and violence against uh, Black people is a manifestation of systemic issues. And so if we focus on the person, then we're not focusing on the bigger problem, um, which is the systemic problem, right? And so I think one thing you can do is just use that technique, be extreme or come to me. Um, nobody should be ex executed for, for these trivial things, right? And I think that's a good way to start the conversation. Um, cool. What, I reached the end again? I'll give you some time. I'll give you some time. Be creative, people. I'm still here. I cleared my calendar for this. So let's, let's do it. Anything else? Nothing? Okay. Well, cool. I think I saw something pop up just now. I'm a machine. I'm a machine. <laughs> uh, Oh, there's stuff coming in? Good. I just need to push you guys a little bit. You can't, listen, you can't outlast me. I'm here for the long haul. <laughs> okay, I'm going to wait for those to come in. Um, my role models. This, this is going to surprise you. Um, it's a weird response, but, but stay with me. Um, this is the way that I look at role models. And I think from time to time it changes, right? Depending on what I'm going through in my life. So for instance, if I'm working on being a better husband, it'll be somebody who I think is a good husband. Um, if it's somebody who I think is a good father, it'll, it'll be that person, right? Somebody who's a good in business, it'll be that person. I'm reading their books. I'm trying to learn from them I'm, and that type of stuff. Um, I would say my role models are people that I read, like the books that I read. I try to get through a book a week, which is challenging, but I try to do it. I take a ton of notes because the way I see it, if I admire somebody, I take, I, I, I want their wisdom. And the way that I see it, people take the best of themselves and put them in these magical things called books. And then once you read those books, you consume it and you remember it, then it's part of you too. So that's the way I think about it. But if I'm talking about a specific person who I consistently look up to, this is where it gets weird, so stay with me. It is, it is myself in, in 10 years. 
So th- it sounds arrogant, but think about it. So I, the way that I make decisions is I ask myself, who do I want to be? Not what I feel like doing, because um, that'll lead me astray. What I felt like doing before was, was not engaging in this. But when I look at Kwame at, uh, at 41, what would he think? What, if, he, if he looked back on my behavior, what would he say? He said, well, that, that guy wasn't a good leader. And so I, I use that as a guiding principle. I don't like trying to idolize other people because uh, my rule of thumb is don't get, to, don't get to know your heroes too much because they'll eventually disappoint you. And so, um, and also they're, not, they're often not similarly situated. And so there are going to be differences. And so when I think about um, Kwame in 10 years, where do I want to be? And then using that as a guiding principle to the, to the moves I should use right now, it helps me to be a little bit more strategic um, about the way that I approach the conversation. So twofold answer, it would be the people that I read, the books that I read, and then um, the, uh, like the version of myself that I eventually want to be. And usually I focus on ideals versus like um like ideals and vision principles um versus like specifics because sometimes opportunities present themselves uh that you didn't see coming you know if you would have asked me hey kwame <laughs> if you would have asked me last week hey kwame uh, do you think you're going to have a, a webinar where 950 people register and it's going to be how to talk about race i'll be like what, are you, <laughs> what world are you living in right but um, when you think about decisions in terms of who you want to be, um, not how you feel, it kind of changes the direction that you take. So uh, I try to focus on role models in, in that unique way. Interesting question. Cool. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know that in addition to our usual negotiation and conflict resolution focused trainings that we do for corporations, we also have added content focused on how to have difficult conversations about race. And so what we're doing is we're blending my background in civil rights along with my background in negotiation and conflict resolution to create a one of a kind training that is customized for your organization that helps you get through these difficult conversations. If you're interested, make sure to check out the link in the description to learn more. And now, back to the episode. Um, I've oftentimes witnessed people uh, forgiving overt racism by saying they were part of that generation. I'm thinking about questions like, what makes racism okay in any generation? What would it mean to you if your kids witnessed that generation in your presence and you didn't say or do anything? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I think... Obviously, it's problematic. I agree with you in that sense. It's, it's very problematic. How are we going to justify slavery? Yeah, that was their age, but that was wrong still, right? So that's the first thing. Um, but also, I think that it's problematic because it's a discussion that often leads us from having more reasonable discussions that actually could lead to change currently, right? Because if we're talking about whether or not slavery was <laughs> slavery was right or wrong, or uh, whether or not, uh, um, you know, banning interracial marriage was wrong. Um, I mean, I, I feel like we're moving in the wrong direction, if that's even like a, a conversation that we're having. So I like to engage in what I call future-focused problem-solving. What's the future that we want to create? We have to be mindful of the past, right? Thinking back, about, thinking back to the things that created the scenarios that we're in right now, like um, the, uh, the redlining that I described earlier, we have to have an understanding of where we were so we can start to undo some of those problems. But I prefer to stay focused on the future. And I think if we focus on the past too much, 
is going to be really annoying, first of all, clearly. And a lot of times really unproductive too. How do you start conversations about the movement with a person of color um, uh, with your coworkers? and uh, where the majority of her coworkers are white and the company has not talked about the movement or addressed it. So, um, so as a person of color, and so, uh, okay, I get it now. I get it now. So the person says, I am a person of color and in parentheses, Asian. I was like, I don't, I, I read it wrong. So I apologize for that. So yes. So as a person of color who is an Asian, who wants to have a conversation with her, with coworkers, um, how do you have those conversations? Um, I would say the exact same thing. I would just, that we've been talking about earlier, use the framework, obviously, first, get the guide, americannegotiationinstitute.com slash justice. Everybody, if you've been, listen, you've been on this call for almost three hours. You better have gotten the guide by now. My goodness. Okay. So anyways, what I would say is this, just, uh, I would start the conversation and just start asking questions about what our response needs to be. Right. And, and don't think that the fact that you're not black or a person of color who deals with this particular issue um, delegitimizes your your impact or your voice in this, because the thing is, we are all impacted by this. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. has an incredible quote on this. I'm not going to try to, 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 to say it off the fly because I will just, you know, just destroy it. Um, but essentially, it says we're all we're all sewn together in an inis, uh, inextricable yeah, see, I, see, I messed it up. I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have done it. <laughs> Google it. But what we're saying is like, we're all connected. Injustice every, anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, right? And so if we're seeing this and we're impacted, that impact is real for you and you want to make change. And I would just say that, be honest with you, with, with the people around you. Say, listen, I'm not black, but this impacted me too. And I think we should have a conversation about what we're going to do. Be, just be that straight with them. That's it. And I think, again, we overthink it because we say, okay, give my position, do a blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I don't overthink it. I don't want the, the fear of coming off the wrong way to be the thing that holds you back. Because again, if you've been, you've been here for, for two hours and 52 minutes, um, the people who are still here, I, I would be surprised if you're saying something that is, in, that is insensitive. And now if you do, you know how to recover too. What do you say to people who say white lives matter to combat black lives matter? I would say, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? Um, right? So that's the first thing. Again, I love leading with questions. Um, think about this for a second, just briefly, quick aside. Um, a lot of times, and I've heard this multiple times in multiple different ways from multiple people who say, I really struggle in conversations where the person says, um, when we're having a conversation about racial justice and uh, police brutality, those type of things, when they say, well, what about black on black crime? Well, what about poverty? What about this person doing this? What about the things that they were doing? Blah, blah, blah. The reason why that's so difficult is because you control conversations through curiosity. You can control conversations through questions. And whenever somebody asks a question, you feel obligated to respond to it. So you want to talk about this thing and they're asking questions about this thing. So now you start talking about this thing. And the reason those conversations are so difficult is because you're not talking about what you meant, what you're meant to be talking about, right? And so here, what they're trying to do is pull away from the real issue. And so you have to bring them back by saying, well, first of all, I think even before we talk about the, the substance, you have to identify, help them to understand, like, where does that come from? 
why why are you saying that help them to to recognize that for yourself for themselves because in my opinion if i see that um what you're doing is you're belittling the the reality of the situation um there is a there are several black people dead and then at the same time there are there's an entire community in pain and your situation what you're saying is white lives matter too and so um if it's imagine i mean let's let's think about it in a different context it's like if somebody's like if my brother dies if my brother dies and i'm like man my brother shouldn't have died and then you say i have a brother he's not dead he matters too it's what are you doing right and so (laughs) it's really tough to avoid like just shaming somebody in that situation but a lot of times people are blind to their own biases what's making you say that um do you have a problem like just on a like a theoretical level do you do you have a problem with um validating or giving credence to the fact that the lives of black people matter because right now we have the fact that black people have died which you know right and so there is that's a tough one that's a tough one especially from the fact that you you'll it'll be difficult to maintain your cool um but again i think people respond in these ways but they don't they often do it without fully understanding where it's coming from and if you're going up against if you're trying to fight a war with somebody but uh, you're you're trying to fight that war but with an unidentified enemy which is the bias it's going to be hard to win the war because they don't even know what's really the root of that. So I think for you in that situation, you have to help them to understand where the, like the gap between their, like the reality and where they currently are and where that came from, because they might be saying it from a logical sense. They might think that they're saying it from a logical sense, but the realization, the reality, the reality is that um, in this situation or, or in general, it's really hard to tell the difference between feelings and logical thought right because that's a feeling thing right that's a bias that's a that's a conclusion based in bias not in in factor or substance or or logical thought right and so we have to help them to understand the difference between the two um let me know if i answered that well that that kind of got me incensed i think i wasn't as sharp as i could have been on that one let me know um i'm a black man and i've been telling people who want to be allies to get informed, take it upon themselves to do some reading and come to these conversations more informed so people of colors don't have to be, um, do all, to all the, le- so people of colors don't have to do all the heavy lifting from ground zero. Is that belittling? Depends on how you say it. Um, it depends on how you say it. And so here's what I'd ask. I, I think, again, there's something that people need to discover about themselves in these conversations. I would say, all right, Great. Yeah, I could definitely help you with that. Um, What research have you done on your own in that situation? Oh, well, you know, I haven't really done anything. I don't know what, where to start. It's like, well, (laughs) just out of curiosity, because it seems as though, again, compassionate curiosity framework, it seems as though you really care about this issue, but you haven't done any research. So I'm, I'm just a little bit confused by that. Well, I don't blah, 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 blah. Right. And so I think, again, what's really happening is that the person doesn't want to engage, change their behavior, change the way that they see the world. If they were interested in that at the time, they would have, they would have tried to educate themselves, but they didn't. And they're going to put that, that burden on you because it'll be, it just makes it a little bit more difficult for them to have to uh, accept the reality that's painful for them. I mean, think about that when we don't want to do something. 
right? If our, like back when we were kids, if our parents to ask us to do something, oh, I'll give an example. If, <laughs> if Whitney asked me to do something I don't want to do, hey, like take out the trash, I, I would talk about all the reasons <laughs> why that is just so incredibly difficult for me to do. Um, okay, yeah. Well, when do you want me to do it? <laughs> you know, just do it. I could just, I could just get up off the couch and do it. That is a solution that would, that would solve the problem, right? But I'm saying, okay, well, when do you want to do it? Okay, can you do it now? Well, now is really tough for me. Um, when else is another good time? All right. Well, you know, my foot kind of hurts, right? The, the reason I'm doing that, and at the time, I might, it might feel like what I'm doing or saying is legit. Um, but the real reason I'm doing that is because I don't want to do it. And so I'm creating these false barriers that keep, that stay in my way. And so what Whitney could say in that situation is, um, how long do you think it would take you to, to go take out the trash? Oh, you know, about, you know, um, let's say a minute and 32 seconds. Well, (laughs) what's preventing you from doing that? Yeah. My desire is preventing me from doing that. And so I think helping people to understand that would be even more helpful because what that tells me, if the person hasn't done their homework or taken the steps to do that, it shows me that there's a lack of curiosity, which might signal a lack of a true desire to change. And so even if you provide them with the information, you're still going to run into barriers. One of my friends, um, shout out to Cheyenne Chambers if she's listening or you know her, um, she's a civil rights attorney. And so she, somebody said, listen, I have a, um, I, I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but if you connect with her on LinkedIn and check out this post, it was masterfully done. Somebody said, listen, what is, what's leading to our conclusions on this? How much do we know? Do we know these types of things? Essentially asking those questions, hey, I don't have enough information to, uh, to come to a conclusion on this. And she responded back and said, listen, you created this incredible document that I reference a lot of times. And in order to do that, it must have taken a lot of research for you to do that. I encourage you to utilize the same amount of research that you put into that document to figure out a way to educate yourself on this. Exposed, right? Exposed. So, um, yeah, I think that might be indicative of of a deeper issue, um, the reluctance to to dig deeper. Thank you, Kwame. Love the book. Hey, hey. Um, any clever tools, techniques for identifying the right timing to move through the compassionate curiosity framework to get to the substance of the negotiation? I love your point about listening uh, with your eyes. Thank you very much for your time today. Hey, my pleasure. Um, so timing, timing is critical. One thing about the compassionate curiosity framework is that, um, and I, I make sure to include this too, because sometimes people might use it as an excuse to uh, kind of stay in perpetual questioning and uh, like stay in the fields and everything, but not transition into um, like more substantive dialogue. And that can be problematic. And so what I would do is, and this this is, it's not very science-based or anything like this, pay attention to the time. How long have we been having this conversation? <laughs> right? And we can have an idea like, okay, we we're past this now. Let's talk to talk about something substantive. People would pre even if they start to re- realize the difference, like where where they need to be and the changes that they need to make, it's a lot easier for them them to stay in the theoretical world. So they can have that, they can feel like an ally, but really not necessarily transition into commitment or doing anything. And so what I would do is I would just be mindful of the time that it takes to move through it and, um, and, and try to shorten the, the period between where you are and where you want to be. And sometimes I say that explicitly. I think about it as a mediator. What I would say sometimes is I would say, listen, we've been having this conversation uh, for about 
40 minutes at this point. And um, I feel as though I have a good understanding of where you stand on this. And I know that because you, you've repeated yourself multiple times. Uh, so what are we going to do next? Right? I think a good way to transition is then so they don't feel as though you're just shutting them up and moving forward is do a really thorough summary of all of their points. So I would just use it as a transition point to say, listen, so just to, to recap here, it sounds like where you were before was X, Y, Z, and now you are X, Y, Z. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Well, great. And I think we have a good understanding. Now what's next? What are we actually going to do? And so then I would transition. You, you can't just stay in the theoretical uh, for a long time. You have to at some point move to the substance or you're letting them off the hook. Does the compassionate curiosity technique work as a parenting technique? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, it was Kai who inspired it. Honestly, he inspired the first step. And um, acknowledging emotions is powerful because I think you can see it really well with children um, because they're very emotional. And why are they very emotional? It's because the, uh, the prefrontal cortex, the, the, the frontal lobe, the part that actually is involved in self-regulation, executive function, logical thinking, all of that, it takes the longer to develop. But the amygdala, you're born with that like the emotional response, you're born with that. So they're a lot more reactive to these situations. And so I recognize that when I acknowledge the way that Kai's, that Kai is feeling, um, he's a lot more receptive to what I have to do next. And a lot of times that's all they need. It's just an emotional acknowledgement that, hey, the way that you're feeling is legitimate. The way that you acted is not okay. And you have to draw that distinction, but you can acknowledge somebody and validate them without agreeing with them. So Kai, you seem really mad. Yeah, I'm really mad. Okay. Yeah. And I can tell you're really mad because you, you, uh, you threw this toy, right? Yeah. I threw the toy because I was really mad. Okay. Yeah. And it makes sense because you were mad because I told you that you couldn't have candy before dinner. Yeah. I'm mad at you. Yeah. That makes sense. You really like candy. And so now Kai, when you throw that toy, how do you think that makes me feel? Oh, it probably makes me feel sad. Yeah. It makes me feel sad. What else? Do you think that's something that you should be doing? No, it's probably not something that I should be doing. Okay, transition now to joint problem solving. Well, now since we both know that it's not something that you should be doing, what do you think you should do now? I should pick up my toy. Oh, that's really good. Good idea, Kai. So let's pick up the toy. What else do you think you should do? Oh, I should say sorry, daddy. Okay. So are you sorry? Yeah, I'm sorry, daddy. Then he gives me a hug and he's good. I'm allowing him to parent himself. He's four. You know, the thing is, a lot of times people have the right answers inside of them if you ask the right questions in the right way. And so it's rare. It's really rare with Kai to the point where, where I need to explain something to him. I mean, it's, it's very rare. If you ask the right questions, they can educate themselves. And so I use this all the time when I parent Kai. Um, I have a friend who is Hispanic and is frustrated by the lack of Black Lives by Oh, sorry, who's frustrated by the Black Lives Matter um, excluding other people of color. Um, okay, so it sounds like they're, um, they're frustrated with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, how can we support all people of color um, without changing the language to all lives matter? So I would say this. I would say, um, acknowledge it, right? So the reason the person is saying all lives matter, let's give them the benefit of the doubt is because they genuinely believe that we're all, we're all equal and everybody's important. And I say, yeah, I, absolutely. Um, we are all important. And I think we should say this too. Um, for example, I, I saw a really interesting uh, like image on it uh, where like they had an image of a, 
a house that was on fire right beside a house that was not on fire. And the, the firefighters are spraying the house that's not on fire saying how's all houses matter. Right. And so what we're saying is, yeah, black lives matter is not a, um, uh, negating the fact that other lives matter. What it does do is bring recognition to the fact that the reason we feel like we need to say that is because it's been called into question through the activities of different factions of society, right? I mean, I'm, you know, for instance, with Kai, bringing, just to make it super obvious, you know, protein is important. I don't have any trouble getting Kai to eat protein, but I have to say vegetables are important too vegetables matter right i can't say pop tarts matter too right it's just it's um it's frustrating and i think again it's it's uh it's, i think at, on a deeper subconscious level no way to prove this of course but this is the way i think about it is that it's a the, the goal in that is to try to avoid the deeper conversation about the the world that we live in and it's similar to what i described earlier about the just world hypothesis we're going to try to interpret everything that happens in a way uh, if those if society let me say it this way if society is working for us we're going to try to interpret the world in a way that makes us believe that society is okay because if it if it isn't then it calls into question where we are um in these situations and so um so yeah i would help try to help them to understand that um do you like i i would start off with a question do you think that we're negating the the value of other people's lives why do you think what do you think is leading us to feel the need to remind people that black lives matter what do you think is leading to that right um it, it should i mean if they're answering honestly it shouldn't be that difficult to to share to get them to to adjust and see it yeah that's why we're saying it you might not need to say that if you don't feel comfortable saying that mantra or, or using that tagline or hashtagging that then don't but what you can say is that there is a significant issue. We both see it. Use whatever terms you feel comfortable with, um, but let's not use that. Let's not you play these word games, these semantic games to try to avoid the substance of the, the conversation. Yeah. Um, again, don't, don't fall for the proxy wars because it's about focus. Who cares what words you use in this situation? Okay, fine. You don't want to say Black Lives Matter, then don't. Um, but we can talk about the fact that both of us wanted a just and equitable society and where we are right now isn't where we need to be. So good question. Good question. What other questions you have? I'm not going to be able to talk for a week. I might need to cancel my, my podcast interviews for Monday. <laughs> I have three interviews on Monday. Can you believe that? That's crazy. Any other questions? No? Cool. All right. I win. I lasted longer. <laughs> Very cool. All right, everybody. Well, thank you for coming. Hope this was helpful. Um, we'll be in touch via email to let you know, um, you know, when the replay is ready, but I appreciate you staying on the 81 of you who still did. That's incredible. Uh, three hours and eight minutes, incredible stamina. So kudos to you for staying, hanging in there. Um, but um, yeah, continue to share the word, spread the word, stay active, do something, have these conversations and, and use this framework as a tool. That's my challenge to you. Use the framework. You're going to have an opportunity to do it. So use it, use it and, and start to make uh, the difference in the world that you want to see. So thank you very much for coming. I appreciate it. And, and let's keep in touch.
Congratulations! You've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.